0: Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America.
1: Good evening and welcome to this April Fool's edition of Liberal Fix Radio. It is Friday, April 1st, but I promise the show will be real. This will be real stuff, so no jokes here. But um, I'm the host, Keith Brekas, and uh, I'm excited today because our guest will be Deborah Jean Lee, who is the author of Rescuing Jesus. How people of color, women, and queer Christians are reclaiming evangelicalism. Um, how are you doing this evening, Deborah?
0: I'm great. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're happy to have you, and I'm, I'm excited to talk about uh, about about your book. Um, so maybe for our listeners, could you just kind of uh, outline, I guess, what the book is about, and maybe why you wrote it, and and why it's significant.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So my book is about the progressive evangelical movement. And, you know, when I started the book, I um, had actually left the evangelical movement and was considered myself one of the nuns, people, N-O-N-E-S, people who don't identify with any particular religion. And I was reporting on evangelicals and really skeptical of this idea that there was this progressive evangelical movement. Um, and um, as I started reporting on it, I started realizing that just an increasing number of evangelicals were disenchanted with the culture wars. And they were either leaving the evangelical movement like I had done, or they were staying within it and trying to change it from within. And the more I went into, the deeper I went into the evangelical movement, the more I saw that people who were really authentically changing evangelicalism were the people on the margins. And these were people of color, women, queer Christians, and they were all interpreting scripture and theology from the margins and creating these communities where the gospel could really be lived out as truly inclusive and where they could really pursue social justice. And I was really astounded by that. So I really dedicated the bulk of my book to reporting on how communities on the margins are reclaiming evangelicalism and reshaping what it means to be an evangelical in America.
1: Yeah, that's really exciting because I I think um, at least sort of the stereotype of evangelicals now and probably one that – I sometimes myself fall into is sort of the, um, I guess, the white, conservative, biblical, Republican Christians who who pick and choose maybe parts of the Bible and and focus a lot on sort of um, social issues like maybe banning abortion or or, um, being in opposition to gay marriage, the sort of, um, I don't know, moral majority or the far-right evangelicals. But, But your book, I think, points out that that certainly isn't Um, that there's certainly reform movement within evangelicalism, I think particularly with young people, but also, like you said, people um, on the margins in different categories. And and so, um, yeah, tell us maybe how, um, how those evangelicals differ from the moral majority and maybe when they started emerging or, or, or things like that. Yeah, that's
0: such a good question. Um, You know, there have been progressive evangelicals as long as there's been evangelicalism and in fact this is kind of the story of evangelicalism conservatives and progressive been in this tug of war generation after generation over who gets to define what it means to be evangelical and in our history um the conservatives really won out in the 1970s. This was a time when evangelicalism was in major flux, and evangelicals were kind of considered um, Nixon's silent majority, um, and they, they didn't—they um, weren't activists. They weren't really engaged in politics, and um, there were conservative operatives who were really plotting to find a way to galvanize evangelicals around. Um, conservative politics, and um, in in other areas of evangelicalism, there were liberals and progressives who were also meeting and drafting up documents that, and try, trying to create a movement of evangelicals um, to be active on issues around, um, you know, opposing. Um, opposing militarism opposing patriarchy opposing uh systemic racism they were really working on um progressive a progressive evangelical faith um so there were the progressives and the conservatives in the 1970s and what really made the conservatives um outshine and overpower the progressives was um the issue of race and basically what was happening was you know we had Um, We had the civil rights movement, we had desegregation, and we had conservative white evangelicals really um, reacting against that and trying to create these segregation academies, these white academies, where they could discriminate against people of color and exclude them from admission. And um, that really mobilized Evangelicals, especially when the IRS started targeting these institutions and saying, you guys, um, these policies are discriminatory, so we're going to revoke your tax-exempt status. And that is when evangelicals got really angry, and they felt like they were being attacked by the government. And they really galvanized around this, and that's how the religious right was born. Um, of course, the religious right has rewritten that narrative and said that they were founded on principles of um, anti-abortion. Um, but uh, in reality, they were founded on um, this movement against uh, desegregation um, in America. So that was kind of, that's like our recent history and how um, progressives kind of uh, faded from the spotlight. And they've really come to reemerge in the the past decade. Um, Ironically, it was during... George W. Bush's term that the progressive evangelical movement started to regain its voice and um, younger people started speaking up and um, re-feeling like they had kind of been been duped by um, the religious right. There was this like inextricable marriage between um, evangelicals and the Republican Party and people felt all this pressure to be uh, Republican if they were truly evangelical. And after the wars in Iraq and um, wiretapping and torture, a lot of evangelicals had this crisis of consciousness and started questioning um, whether this marriage was even appropriate in the first place. And um, I actually have this great example. My my roommate in college, when I was part of an evangelical group in college, um, my roommate was a devout evangelical and she was really distraught over who to vote for in the 2000 election. And she, and I remember she turned to me one night in our dorm room and said, um, you know, with, with Gore, babies will die. So I have to vote for Bush. So she, she voted for Bush in 2000, even though she felt like most of Gore's uh, values aligned with her own. And then in 2004, um, she voted for John Kerry, but did it privately and didn't tell anyone about it. And then in 2008, she voted for Obama and was very open about it. And that that trajectory is really the trajectory that I found was uh, emblematic of many evangelicals in our generation. Um, and so that brings us to today, where the evangelical community is just looks so different. Um, than what it looked like in decades past. It's like right now when you look at the demographic changes, uh, the evangelical church is increasingly people of color. It went from like 19% people of color in 2007 to 24% um, uh, in, I believe, in 2015. And all of the church demographers that I spoke to um, project that the evangelical church is going to be reflect the American population. It's going to be majority minority by 2040. And so that's changing the values of the evangelical community. And then the same thing is happening with women rising in leadership, with LGBTQ people coming out of the closet, staying within the church, rising in leadership, redefining um, what it means to be a truly authentically inclusive community, so all of these major changes taking place um, are giving a lot of energy to the progressive evangelical movement
1: yeah, and it sounds and that 's kind of exciting that reform's coming from within, and I think um, you know that bodes well for the future perhaps and I know one of the examples that you talk about is um, Around LGBTQ um, sort of issues and and um, movements within um, the evangelical movement, like I think, for example, the uh, Conservative Evangelical University, Biola University, you talk about a LGBTQ, mm-hmm. LGBTQ club there that has gone public and has had a, some influence on promoting more affirming messages about uh, homosexuality on the campus. Um could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So Biola University is a conservative evangelical college outside of Los Angeles, and they have a policy that prohibits queer expression. And this is a pretty common policy across hundreds of Christian colleges and Christian academies and Christian organizations and churches across the nation. Like This is a policy that's in place that um, is discriminatory and it um Prevents people from being their true selves when they're within these communities, so among college students, there's a lot of fear that if they come out of the closet or if they're outed, that they might get expelled, that they might lose scholarships, they might be forced into reparative therapy, that they might be outed before they're ready to be outed, and their families might find out their families might you know kick them out of the house, stop their tuition payments. And I fear these things because all of these things have happened. We, there's news stories about it. Um, within the queer evangelical college community, there's constantly reports of um, students being outed and facing all of these different consequences as a result and their lives fall apart. So um what's been happening in recent years is there has um, queer students have been finding each other on campuses and forming um, these underground secret societies where they can meet with each other, support each other, um, and just feel less alone and, and have a community um, to help them through living in a very hostile environment. Um, and and in some colleges, these, these groups aren't underground. They're actually um, public. And some of them are even, um, you know, pressuring the administration to sanction them as, as official school clubs. Um, that wasn't the case in Biola. Biola um, the Biola Queer Underground, because they have... Uh, what they call an affirming stance. Uh, they believe that God blesses same-sex relationships and queer expression. Um, bio University won't uh, sanction their group as an official group. Um, so to give you a little bit of backstory, um, in 2012, they launched an anonymous blog letting the campus know that they existed but without revealing their identities. And over the course of the next year, um, all these closeted queer students reached out to them and said, oh, my gosh, I thought I was alone. Can I join your club? And they did. They you know vetted these people to make sure they were truly um, you know that they weren't trying to just expose them, but they truly wanted to be a part of the community. And their community ended growing. And they had this like just beautiful experience of like meeting each other week after week, crying with each other, laughing with each other, um, falling in love, making true authentic friends, creating a community where they could be their whole selves. And, um, by the end of that first year, they realized we we want to come out uh the The seniors and the transfer students said there's enough of us uh, you know this campus knows that we exist, but they think that we 're not real they think that we're uh, you know we're infiltrators, queer activists from the outside, infiltrating a conservative Christian college to kind of shake things up, but we want to show them that we're actually their students were your classmates, they were your roommates, were your friends. Um, and they, so the seniors and, and, and transfer students decided to come out of the closet in, in May of 2013. And actually, I flew out to campus when they did this. They published their names and pictures in an online yearbook and um, distributed flyers around campus. And there was a kind of a huge uproar on campus about this. Um, as a result, you know, they've really put a lot of pressure on the administration to... Um, to engage with these issues. And, you know, in 2012, when they came out um, with the blog, the school, uh, the president of the school, you know, gave a big speech and said, you know, same-sex expression uh, or same-sex relationships, this is an illegitimate expression of, of Christian faith or Christian living. Um, and then that fall, they had this panel of professors talk about you know, Jesus and sexuality. And they, um, there was this one professor who basically said uh, equated uh, homosexuality with, with, with perversion and with dishonesty and lying and sin, and really didn't advance to the conversation at all. Um, But then the year after the students launched the yearbook with their names and their faces, the school finally invited the first LGBT affirming speaker to campus, which before they had never done before, because it was just just so far from their values that they didn't feel like that voice even deserved space on campus. So that was huge progress for a conservative evangelical college, and we're seeing this happen in evangelical colleges across the country. Um, progress is slow, but it's happening. The wheels are turning.
1: Yeah, and I thought it was interesting this election year that, um, for example, Liberty University, which I think is uh, the one that Gary Falwell formed and stuff, uh, that Bernie Sanders on the left, a progressive Democrat, spoke and addressed um, a crowd at Liberty University. And it kind of highlights, I think, uh, that at least among younger evangelicals, among millennials, that in some ways their votes are a little bit up for grabs and that they, they can't be locked into that box of, being Republicans, that a lot of millennials are uh, more intolerant of authoritarianism, more engaged in social justice issues, and tend to be more liberal than perhaps their grandparents and parents, uh, especially if, if their grandparents and parents are also evangelicals. And so, um, and maybe it's an underreported thing, too. Um, th- there might be some suggestion that uh, some of those progressive evangelicals that our millennials helped power um, Sanders to success in states like Iowa and stuff where, where they were part of his voting block along with secular voters and, and you know, mainstream uh, Christians and other people. But, but certainly uh, a sense that there's at least some uh, millennial evangelicals that are supporting progressive candidates. Would, would that be fair to say?
0: Absolutely. I think – um, with the evangelicals that I've been interviewing, um, especially young people, their votes are more up for grabs. They're more engaged in the actual issues. I think in um, previous elections, uh, especially during um, when when George W. Bush was um, running for office, there was um, – there were wedge issues. People voted around two issues, abortion and gay marriage. And they didn't think beyond that. And now when you look at evangelicals, like those two wedge issues, they just don't work anymore. Um, When you look at abortion, yes, most evangelicals identify as pro-life. But when you really dig into what that means to them among young evangelicals they're redefining what that what pro-life means when i ask them what does pro-life mean to you they say well pro-life means protecting life from the womb to the tomb so i want to look at the policies that um that a candidate is supporting i want to look at all of the policies do they support um when when i when when they look at Um, issues of the environment, that's a life issue, because, um, you know, climate change is affecting the poorest and most vulnerable vulnerable people on the planet. When I when people look at issues like um, the death penalty, um, that's also a life issue. Uh, When I look at issues of uh, gun control, that's a life issue, war, poverty. um, And then when you look at abortion itself, um, when I when I asked, my sources. What's your stance on abortion? They don't like abortion. They don't. They don't want to see an abortion increase. But their solution for it is not to outlaw it. Their solution is to um, address the root of the the root of the issue. Uh, comprehensive sex education is uh, something that they value. So is access to contraception. And so is changing the narrative around sex and abstinence, Um, these are things that are very, these positions are very at odds with what older evangelicals have and the religious right have taught over the last uh, several generations. And then when it comes to gay marriage, like that issue is just among young evangelicals, they're they're twice as likely than their older counterparts to support same-sex marriage. And in fact, today now the majority of Christians are pro-LGBTQ. So that, um, I think conservative evangelicals really see that they have lost the culture wars when it comes to gay marriage and um, the queer community.
1: I mean, over the last couple years is how fast um, gay marriage um, accepting it or, or, or at least making a legal spread from, you know, it started out in a couple sort of traditional liberal states, but how fast it went to places like Oklahoma and, you know, everywhere else. And, and, you know, some of them were by courts and some were by the legislature and some were by the voters, but, you know, and then when the Supreme Court made their ruling, it just uh, it's remarkable how fast the sort of um, movement from, from the way it was, like in 2004 when it was used as a wedge issue to, to actually, you know, Karl Rove sort of used it as a wedge issue to drum up votes for, george w bush and even in 2008 california had the prop eight vote and and even in california they couldn't uh legalize it and then a couple years later you know this whole domino effect started and it seemed like you know (laughs) prohibition on on same-sex marriage sort of uh fell everywhere rather quickly and and one thing i've noticed too is uh my brother is a professor at the University of Missouri. He has, like, some freshman interscope classes, and one thing that he noticed is when they asked questions on social issues when it came to same-sex marriage, it didn't matter whether the student identified as a Democrat, Republican, independent, or moderate liberal conservative. They were almost universally in favor of or at least accepting of same-sex marriage like the LGBTQ issues, at least in terms of, sort of your basic line of tolerance, obviously there's things beyond tolerance like acceptance and inclusion and stuff, but I mean, at least at the level of tolerance was almost universal that every college student felt that it should at least, you know, be legal and that they shouldn't discriminate against. So um, I think that was, you know, somewhat surprising for people like myself who grew up, you know, in the 80s and 90s when, you know, those kind of things uh, when when the acceptance level is much much lower, even among um, liberals and moderates, much less conservatives or evangelicals.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of this points back to um, the studies that show that millennials are just far more empathetic. They're ex- the, through technology and social media and globalization, they've just been exposed to so many different ways of life and so many different people that they're not threatened by the other. They're not threatened by people who may live their lives or um, have different identities. And this also, when it comes to the evangelical context, it, what's happening among young evangelicals especially is this push towards um, this belief that the gospel is for everyone, no exceptions. Um, you know evangelicalism for generations has been all about exclusion. It's been all about drawing boundaries, defining who's in and who's out. And what we're seeing among younger evangelicals, especially those on the margins who've consistently been excluded, um, they're really trying to redefine what it means to be evangelical and what it, what the gospel means to them. And to them, it means that we're all a part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is everyone and if we're all just, if, 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 you know, we're all just one part of a body, this is an, an analogy in, in scripture, first Corinthians 12 uh, that Paul writes about how we can't just be a bunch of eyes because then we can't hear. We need all of the parts of the body and in order to function and to thrive and with younger evangelicals, they really understand this concept and they really embody this concept because they themselves um, are so different and diverse when they look at their own group of friends and they want everyone to be included. They don't want to exclude people because they might be different in some way. And so I was really struck during my reporting by how much they're working towards making this belief that everyone is included a reality in their communities. And it's challenging and it's hard because it's pushing against just all of these social structures that have, that the church has put in place to exclude people. Um, and it's really subverting the status quo and creating something really new and beautiful.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I find that very interesting. And I, and I think your point on social media was uh well taken too I think a, a lot of well sort of it seems like when people want to hold on to tradition or in-group thing it's often people that are socially isolated or people who tend to fear the other the most are people who have limited contact with the other or or maybe sometimes they have contacts in certain settings but they're not <laughs> you know in the same workplace or in the same home they may have contact sort of casually like driving through a neighborhood of people that are others, and, and then that further almost creates distance. But, but like you mentioned with social media and stuff, often people have very sort of young people have um, very cosmopolitan or diverse groups of friends that may transcend not only national boundaries but certainly racial and, and, uh, and uh, ethnic boundaries and other things so that they see themselves more as kind of part of a, a more diverse, Whole, rather than sort of trying to be insular and, and restrict themselves to, uh, you know, Americans only or white people from this community only or whatever it is, straight people only. I don't know. So that that's kind of fascinating, and I think it maybe um, uh, makes some promise for the future that uh, even though social media has contradictory. Um, polls where it can also allow the dissemination of misinformation very rapidly it also allows people to connect from across maybe traditional boundaries and and create more diverse networks of friends which which can help with empathy and and um you know making connections with people that are otherwise what might otherwise be viewed as different is that kind of um what you would say maybe
0: yeah, I mean, I think that what you said about the future is is spot on. I mean, this is the future of the church. If the church wants to survive, it needs to embrace the lessons of people from the margins. It needs to embrace people of color, women, the queer community. Um, otherwise, it's going to shrink and become a relic, maybe a country club for a few people. Um, or it can embrace the other and become this really amazing, thriving community that draws a lot of people. You know, when I uh, was reporting on the demographic changes within the church, I see that um, so many people are leaving the church we are—it's like at an unprecedented number, like around a quarter of the of adult Americans now identify as nuns, N O N E S, none of the above, no no religion in particular, spiritual but not religious, um, which there, that that rate has never been reached in the history of our country, um, and evangelical and church and religious leaders are all grappling with this question, like how do we Retain members, or how do we draw people in? Um, and when I you look at the numbers uh, within the Christian Church, the denominations and churches that are like ninety five percent white, their numbers are plummeting. They are losing congregants like crazy. And I don't know how they're going to survive. But then when you look at evangelicals, their numbers are steady. Which, which suggests that there's not a lot of change going on, but that's not true. If you actually look beyond the steady number, there's major, major movement. We have young white millennials leaving the church in droves, and then we have people of color, people from immigrant communities flocking to the evangelical church. So the only reason why evangelical numbers are staying steady is because of people of color, because uh, other communities are coming to the evangelical church and filling those vacant spaces in the pews. And when you think about that, when you think about like evangelical leaders worrying about losing congregants uh, and, and, and shrinking churches, um, there is a very clear answer to to how they can sustain themselves and how they can grow. And that answer is by creating a community that includes everyone and also restructuring leadership and um, the way worship is done and the way theology is interpreted uh, to include the perspectives of People from different communities, right now, um, and you know, for generations, evangelicalism has been interpreted through a very narrow lens of conservative, straight, cisgendered, male, yeah, uh, you know, Christianity, and and that 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 form of theology is just so limiting, and it excludes just the full spectrum of human experience with the divine, and what's happening on the margins of evangelicalism and the way that's moving to the center and really reinvigorating the church. I think it's really exciting because it means that the church doesn't have to die, even though it looks like it's dying in so many parts of the country, but the church can actually survive and thrive and be this really beautiful, welcoming place where all people are included and celebrated and all people can learn from each other. And to me, that, that is the good news.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and so it, it seems like with the reform that, that the church can stay relevant as as long as it, you know, maintains a, a connection to a larger group of people than a narrow slice of the population that would allow the church to sort of shrink and wither. But, but if if, they're, if the message is more inclusive and includes a, a broader group of people and, and some of the perspectives from within the congregants or members, then that allows it sort of to survive survive and grow and, and uh thrive and maintain relevance with with a diverse uh population there. Um and so I guess um, um we're running short on time, but I really want to thank you for um for joining us and for help uh helping uh share about your book. I, I think many of our listeners will find it um, fascinating and important stuff, and I hope they'll, they'll get a copy and read it. Um, so with that in mind, where can people go for more information or to order the book or to follow you online or anything like that if, if they want to find out more? Yeah,
0: sure. Well, um, they can order the book. It's, it's available anywhere in any physical bookstore. Um, independent bookstores are fantastic. It's also available on Amazon. And they can also, um, I'm launching this really cool, exciting new program called One Book, One Church. I'm doing it in partnership with Urban Village Church in Chicago. And what it is, is it's essentially a national interchurch book club that will read Rescuing Jesus over the course of the summer with an eye towards developing concrete strategies for practicing radical inclusion and authentic social justice. So what's going to happen is we have the schedule where you read one chapter a week and then there's going to be online discussions. And then each month there's going to be a live online event with me and some experts, leading Christian activists, uh, theologians, pastors, just all these really incredible people who are doing this really important work. Um, and dealing with all the challenges that come with it and can provide real concrete solutions for how we can overcome those challenges. Um, and I would love to invite your listeners to join One Book, One Church. If you go to my website, you can sign up. It's uh, My website is uh, com, and click on the link at the top of the page that says one book, one church, and you can sign up there. And there's a special gift for people who sign up early and we'll set you up a starter kit that will give you a social media package, a schedule, invitations to all of our events and a lot of other really awesome perks that can help get your community energized and engaged around uh, finding ways to engage with social justice in your local community. So I would love if people joined me, and um, you'll be able to interact with me and some other um, other people who are involved in this work over the course of the summer.
1: Wow, very cool. So I'll, I'll put a link, too, on our Liberal Fix page so people can access it through there on our Facebook page. Um, and, yeah, once again, thank you so much for joining us uh, uh, Um, to share your book with us and and your ideas. I thought it was very exciting. And um, I want to thank our listeners for listening and hope everybody has a great weekend, too. And thank you again so much for joining us.
0: Thank you. It was so fun. Have Have a great weekend.
1: You too. Thank you very much.